I'm so glad you're here. I love this time of year. Isn't this a great time of the year? Spring and the sunshine and the masters. Anybody a golfer, huh? And uh, just so you know, uh, we're always pulling for uh, this kid named Jordan Spieth because his caddy is a friend of mine from Gig Harbor, Washington. Uh, and uh, so Michael Greller's on the bag and, and so far they're hanging in there. So that should be a fun finish tomorrow. Not only the Masters, you know, but this, uh, you got like the Mariners are, right now they're like less than 20 games below 500, which is exciting. It's always kind of like this, a hopeful time of the year. And uh, yeah, and then the end of American Idol. So that's over, that's out of the way. That's gonna free up so much time, I don't even know what I'm gonna do. It's an exciting time of the year to be around, and uh, I do want to welcome you uh, as well, and I want to recommend last week's talk online at timberlake.com, or it's timberlakechurch.com, and uh, I want you to check that out because Ben talked about how um, it seems too good to be true, but you are not your past, and it was a great uh, teaching, and, and as he mentioned, uh, a way for us to sort of springboard into this little letter that we find in the new part of the Bible to a group of people in modern-day Turkey and in that day, it was a town called Colossae, and they, that's why we have this letter to the Colossians, to the folks who live there. It's very, uh, I think, uh, one of the most profound and interesting little letters that we find in this part of the Bible. And tonight I wanted to add, in episode two, the idea that it seems too good to be true, but that the force is with you. And so now that kind of makes sense out of our little clip we had there. Um, but first of all, just to just in case you know you're just showing up or you're a guest, um, uh, just so you understand, this letter was written by a pastor in back in the day whose name was Paul. Paul did a lot of uh, corresponding to churches. He actually started a lot of churches. This particular church he didn't start, but a friend of his did, and came and told him what was happening there, so he wrote him a letter, and we still have that letter today, which is not only encouragement to those folks back then, but to us today. And Paul wrote this letter. If you have your notes, this is a fun time to get your pen ready to go because we're going to fill in a blank here. He wrote this letter while in prison. There are a group of letters that we have in the new part of the Bible. And again, I always just take a second to say that if you're new to the Bible, there's an old part and a new part. And the old part is primarily about a country named Israel. The new part's primarily about an Israeli named Jesus, and so they go together. And then we have these letters to the churches, but four of these letters were written by Pastor Paul when he was in prison in Rome. He appealed to Caesar and said, I want an audience with the, the ruler of the world and, uh, and I want to be able to explain my behavior and exactly what I'm about. And in doing so, was able to share uh, the great news of Jesus Christ uh, to really uh, the center of the universe at, in that day and age. So he appealed to, uh, to, the, to Caesar and they took him to Rome. Uh, he was under guard. And the Bible, if you want to read about this, there's a, a book called The Actions of the Early Church or The Acts of the Apostles. And Paul was one of the apostles. So in, in chapter 28 of that book, you can see how he makes that trip. It was a pretty big adventure. He had a shipwreck. He ended up uh, uh, in, you know, on an island uh, where he got bit by a snake. I mean, all kinds of adventure. And he finally makes it to Rome under guard. And he wrote four different letters to four churches. He wrote the letters to the church in Ephesus, in Philippi. And then he wrote to a, a, an individual named Philemon, and so this, Colossians is the fourth. So all of these letters were written in prison, out of a prison cell. And it's important for us to realize that because I think one of the things we can take from that idea is that um, I've talked to people now and then who say, I say, how's it going with you? And they say, you know what? I kind of feel like I'm in a prison right now. Like, what do you mean? Well, I, I'm sick. I'm 
I'm dealing with a, a difficult diagnosis. I, you know, I find myself kind of in a dead-end circumstance at work. You know, we feel really, and I tell them, hey, listen, beautiful things can happen in a prison. Amazing, amazing uh, thoughts and, and conversations and narratives can be formed in a prison setting. So we should value those times when sometimes we feel captive. This is what happened with Paul. Instead of saying, oh, no, you know, this is horrible. What am I doing? He used that time to encourage people, not only in that day and age, but all the way to us today. And so it's important for us to remember that. This letter is also written to primarily a non-Jewish audience. So a lot of the, a lot of the um, material in the Bible is focused toward uh, a group of people that were raised in a Jewish context. And so, you know, uh, if those of you, anybody like myself, like I, I was not raised uh, in a Jewish context, I don't really understand all the, uh, the practices of uh, the traditional practices of the Jewish people. But a lot of the Bible is written to that uh, group of people. And so they make a lot of references. They'll say on Passover, at the Feast of the Tabernacles. They'll start saying all these things that people that were raised Jewish, they understand. Well, Paul is writing this particular letter to a group of people who are primarily non-Jewish. We know that because um, he actually says in the text itself, he says uh, he wants to let them know in verse uh, 27 of chapter 1 that God has reached out to the non-Jewish community, the Gentiles, and brought the riches of his mysteries. That's what he's saying. Now, one of the things that's interesting is that we know a lot about what these folks were thinking at this time. If they weren't raised, you know, in a Jewish context, they certainly were raised in a theological context, and they believed in the gods of the Greek and Romans. So we know that uh, particular uh, gods were always involved in the way people saw life. Now, sometimes when we say gods, we think, um, you know, of God, but really the, the way they talked about gods were forces in the universe, right? These are influences. This is a way to just explain how the world works. And some of you that, remember Greek mythology in school? You know, kind of confusing, right? But it's, it was very common for everybody to understand uh, that sort of way to explain the world. That there was uh, the son of the gods whose name was Zeus. That was, Zeus was the uh, Greek name for the ultimate god at that time. The greatest force in the universe, the guy who, you know, who had thunderbolts and lightning, you know, I mean, he was amazing, right? And, and then the Romans said, well, you know, that's our God too, but we call him Jupiter. So they always had the same deities, but with different names. And in every single uh, Greek-influenced town, which would have been this part of the world for sure, there was always a temple to Zeus at the highest point in the city. The highest point in the city was always called the Acropolis. Now, some of you think the Acropolis is in Athens because that's famous, right? But that's just the highest point in Athens. There's an Acropolis in Corinth. There's an Acropolis, there's an Acropolis in Gig Harbor. And guess what? Costco's on it. Yeah, that, that tells you something about our God right there, you know? Uh, and what happens is Acropolis just means high point. That's where we get the word acrobat, when somebody's, you know, way up there, all right? So every city had an Acropolis, and on the Acropolis was a temple to Zeus or Jupiter, but then in the town, there was a patron god. Now, in Gig Harbor, where I live, in case you don't know where that is, it's you know, just across the bridge. Uh, the, our version of the Golden Gate Bridge is the Narrows Bridge here in Washington. And we live right there, and we have a, a fishing fleet where we have uh, actual you know, boats that are involved in the deadliest catch. And uh, you know, we, we, uh, we have a, a blessing of the fleet. We have a, a live, active fishing fleet out of Gig Harbor. So we really understand, you know, these passages in the Bible about Jesus calling the fishermen. I mean, you know, we're, we're a seafaring community. And in fact, if we had a patron God in Gig Harbor, if we were living in antiquity, 
No question who the patron god would be. Who, who would be our, our, our patron god, downtown Gig Harbor? Anybody? Greek mythology, go for it. Poseidon, for sure. I mean, Poseidon was the god of the sea, the god who blessed the fishermen, right? And, uh, and then, of course, his Roman name was Neptune. So they always have the same kind of god, but different names. And so we would say, man, we really have to honor this particular force because we don't want storms, you know, we want productive fishing, all that kind of stuff. Well, in Colossae, we know who their patron god was. They had a temple to Zeus, but in town, their god was Dionysus, which is the god of wine. This guy was kind of a crazy god, right? And would, uh, you know, was famous for sort of being, causing people to be under his influence as they sort of imbibed in more and more wine. And one of the things we know about uh, the god of wine is that, uh, that people that sort of worship to the god of wine or, you know, that they explain the universe based on the blessing of this god, you know, would have identified it as a force in their lives and also would have thought that this is the most powerful influence that there is. That's why they would honor Dionysus. You know, they would say, we have to, and most of the time when Dionysus was the patron god of a town, what kind of, a, they were in an agricultural area where they grew grapes. And they would say, like, we need this particular god to bless the crops and to make sure that everything is, you know, works out for us. And then Jesus, you ever wonder why his first miracle was? He walks into Cana of Galilee, which is wine country, in northern Israel, they say they run out of wine. Wow. That's kind of on Dionysus, right? You know, that's, that's sort of a, an affront to their patron God. And what Jesus does is he turns water into wine. And people were thinking, I don't know who this is. But I'll tell you what, he's got a greater uh, force in, in our lives. You know, he has greater power to make something happen than the patron God of our town. This is what we have to know about these people in order to understand this little letter. Yeah, that they uh, were a non-Jewish audience and that they were dedicated and devoted to the mythologies of the day. The uh, theme of the letter, kind of the big idea behind the letter, is that Pastor Paul wanted them to grow up, to be mature. And when we read and we, we learn it, we find out that um, maturity actually is an understanding of who Jesus Christ really is. If we don't understand Jesus as the most dynamic force in all of life, then we're not fully grown in our understanding of what God is doing. And that's what the case was here. People had decided, well, Jesus sounds terrific, and we'll put him in the collection of the gods. And so Paul writes this letter to let them know that Jesus Christ is supreme. And that's the theme of this letter, maturity. He said, one thing that I want to teach this is Paul in chapter 1, verse 28, is that everyone would be presented fully mature in Christ. He said, it's to this end that I'm writing. That's the reason I'm writing this. He said, I want you, everyone to grow up and to understand what it's like to really, to, to realize who Jesus Christ is, right? And then uh, this particular passage, there's a big word. If you go to seminary, you'll hear this word. It's called Christology. What it means is that... Um, this passage is among the most important Christological passages about the person, the nature, and the role of Christ. This particular little letter, and especially this little section we're going to look at today, from chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, just five verses, it's a little poem. Some people think it's a, a fragment of a hymn. It is the most important passage on the person, the nature, and the role 
of Jesus Christ. So you can see that Pastor Paul is saying, hey, if we're going to grow up, we need to know who the person of Christ is. We need to know about his nature. We also need to know, you know, everything we can about the role of Christ in our lives. Otherwise, we're not fully formed. We, have, we don't have a full understanding of who God is. And so I think it's important for us to understand that. And uh, now, many of you uh, might be aware there was a, actually, it's a Dutch company. It's an adult beverage company. Uh, and uh, they, they brew lagers, and uh, they decided to come up with a, uh, a brand new product uh, 10 years ago, and they decided to target an audience that's entirely non-Dutch, so they named it uh, Dos Equis. They named this, this beverage, and they decided to market it, which has become one of the most successful marketing campaigns in recent history, with a guy they called the most interesting man in the world. How many of you recognize that? You remember, you've seen some of those commercials, right? Well, that guy actually is, you know, I don't know if you've seen the most recent one. They sent him to Mars because he's over. He's done. The most interesting man in the world has been retired. Yeah, it was uh, actually a, a veteran actor named Jonathan Goldsmith, and Jonathan is gone. And so we're all waiting to see who the sort of the, the new incarnation of the most interesting man is. But those, in, the, those ads have become like famous around the world for the things that they say about the most interesting man, Right? They say things like this, sharks have a week dedicated to him. You know, that's how interesting he is. I mean, he lives vicariously through himself, right? His mom has a tattoo of him. I mean, you know, it goes on and on. They have all kinds of quotes that are really great. One of my favorite ones is, presidents take his birthday off. I like that one. And then here's my, my all-time favorite so far, but there's a bunch you could choose from. He has won and a life. He he won a lifetime achievement award, twice. <laughs> and the most interesting man in the world. So this is, this campaign actually was uh, kind of a genius campaign. And, and uh, if you want to, if you're a marketing person, uh, this catapulted their brand, you know, into a, another stratosphere and added a whole new demographic to their to, to their uh, product line. And uh, so people are looking at it now, and they're kind of looking back on it because this guy is going away. And it's very. It's profound because what Paul is really saying in this letter to this church and to us is that we have to find Jesus as the most interesting man in the world. We have to understand he is the most profound human being that ever lived. And we have to understand what kind of a force that exerts on our life. And so that's the, that's the whole idea behind this little passage. And so there's this little part in chapter 1, verse 15. It's actually a poem. And what's interesting is some people think maybe the poem had preexisted and that Pastor Paul had just decided to authorize it by putting it in this chapter, but nobody has a record of its preexistence, so he could have authored it. But it's a really remarkable poem, and really it's all about saying things about Jesus as the most interesting man in the world. And uh, the first thing um, he says in this passage is that... Uh, Jesus is the picture of God. He is the image of God, the image of an invisible God. Now, um, a lot of you know that the old part of the Bible was written in Hebrew. Most of the new part of the Bible was written in Greek. So if, you're, if you can read or, or speak Greek, you have a real advantage because you can read the original text. Um, Thankfully, based on some of you smart people here that probably invented, you know, uh, uh, some of these web tools that we have, now we can read Greek. Ben and I can read Greek, you know, because we, we have interlinear kind of, you know, opportunities. And one of the things that's very interesting is this, this 
particular phrase that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The word image in the Greek language is icon. It means he has, he's become visible. What was something that we did not fully see has now become something that we can understand. That, that Jesus is the icon or he is the, uh, you know, he's essentially the, the, the revelation of God to us. And then it says that he's the firstborn over all of creation. It's a very interesting uh, idea behind that firstborn thing. Um, the Greek word there is called uh, prototokos, which means proto. We get that because prototype. He was the first. But this doesn't mean that Jesus was the first one you know, created. It means that he was the one that presided over creation. He was the cause. And so what Paul is saying is like he's saying something that, that is so profound because people thought in this particular area that Dionysus was the image of God, that he was the son of Zeus, that, that if you wanted to understand the forces in the universe, you understood this patron God, and they had statues of him. And Paul walks in and says, guess what? Jesus Christ is the icon. He's the very image of the invisible God that you seek. And he totally changed their understanding of the real force in the universe, that's the first thing he says that we, he wants us to know about Jesus. And this little phrase, what has been, uh, he is the firstborn of all creation. Actually, one of the ways that they explain that is that um, Jesus has fully disclosed who God is. Full disclosure. Nothing hidden. That Jesus has fully explained God's intention by sending you and I a very clear message that we are loved by God and that his love is relentless, just like the song we sang. The second thing Pastor Paul wants us to learn from this poem, this poem is actually structured in four kind of stanzas. The second stanza emphasizes this, that Jesus holds all things together. He is before all things, and in him all things are held together or hold together, okay? Now, this is an interesting thing, this idea that um, Jesus is the very thing that holds all things together. A good word for us to think of in, in, that explains this is the word cohesion, or something that's cohesive, something that's bonded, right? But it's kind of an interesting thing to try to think of. What do you mean Jesus holds all things together? Well, if you think about I think one of the best ways for me to understand it is to think about marriage. Uh, I've, had a ch I've been married to Marva Lee for, you know, almost 40 years now. And uh, you could say, well, you know, we're two people, right? But we're, we're living one life. And you've heard that at a wedding before where they said, you know, the two will become one. And you're thinking, there's still two though, right? You know, I mean, you've never seen anybody at a wedding all of a sudden, you know, and they're like, wow, that would be pretty exciting. But no, it, when they say the two will become one, they're talking about that because of this promise that's being made, there is going to be a cohesion in this relationship, and these two people are going to live one life together. And you know, in, in the traditional wedding ceremony, it says, and what God has joined together, like what God has created a cohesion, a bond here, don't let anybody take that apart. That's part of the original uh, sort of language of traditional marriage. That's, that's what it's saying here. It's saying that because Jesus okay, is the very thing that causes us to cohere with God. It's because of Jesus. It's the promises 
that he made to us, that he would save us, forgive us, provide for us, empower us, receive us, right? All those promises that were made, that's the thing that holds all things together. And so Paul is saying a very, very, uh, really remarkable thing here, because in the sort of Greek uh, narrative, uh, they felt like that it was the interaction of the gods that held everything together. If you read these mythologies, you'll understand there's a lot of interaction between the gods and things like that. And Paul is disagreeing with that and saying, no, it's, it's because of Jesus Christ that all things cohere. It's the promises that God made in Christ that causes us to be able to understand that we stand firm in our place here and in the future. It's a very important passage. And I think that, to me, marriage is a good example of that. It's that same word, cohere. And then the third thing, the third stanza of this little poem, it said that Jesus is the head of the church. He is the head of the body, the church. That's what Pastor Paul said. Now, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, shock you or anything, but this isn't Ben's church. I mean, I hear that a lot, you know. I mean, uh, I go to different, and we, I understand why we say it. You know, somebody goes, hey, where do you go to church? Well, I go to Ben's church. And we get what you're saying there because Pastor Ben's our teacher. You know, I mean, he, he, he leads us and all that. But it's important for us to realize it's not actually his church. You know what I mean? That Jesus is the head of the church, right? And that, you know, all these different churches. I used to ask my dad this, like, Dad, where are there so many churches in town? And he'd say, well, you know what? Jesus is the head of the church. And these are all just different, they're just different groups. They're all the same, you know, different rooms in the same house if they have a cross on top, right? You know, if they have a little swirly thing with a stick, no, not so much. But, uh, but if, they have a, if, they're, if they believe in the person of Jesus, that he was born of, of a virgin, that he lived a sinless and substitutionary life, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose from the dead, if that's the church, then it's just a matter of style, Right? You know, it's just that there's, you know, different rooms in the same house. There's the formal. How many have been in the formal living room in some people's house? You know, with the velour couch, you know, where everything is kind of all, you know, really styled up. Nobody ever hardly goes in there, but, you know, it's kind of like, you know, choral music, you know. And I happen to grow up, like, in the kind of church that's more like right off the kitchen, you know, and just very casual. But it's, we're all uh, in the church that Jesus Christ died to establish And so Paul wants to let everybody know, look, um, it's not, you know, the the guy that, you know, started this church here in Colossae, it's not me, it's not, it's Jesus is the head of the church. And I think one thing that's important for us to understand when he says this, he's not talking about um, Jesus being like, you know, the boss, you know, and he's going to tell it. When he's saying, when he talks about being the head of the church, he's talking about being um, we understand more about neurology now than, you know, any humans alive, but he's talking about Jesus being the nerve center, right? It's by Jesus that all of life really uh, is clarified. Uh, the way I think of it is this way. If you go to Red Square at the University of Washington, you'll see the undergrad library, just absolutely amazing, you know? I mean, that is a selfie right there, you know? That's just, you know, you can tell people you're in England, they'll believe you. I mean, it's just incredible Gothic architecture, and there are a 100 thousand books on every conceivable topic in that library, all written with one 26-letter alphabet. The alphabet has 26 letters, 
and every idea and every paragraph of every book on any subject was written by that alphabet. And this is what Paul is saying. Jesus is the alphabet. He is the very material by which we begin to construct who we are and explain how things are. No matter, no matter how unique our lives are, Jesus is the head. He's the source. Sometimes it's easier to think of that in terms of rivers. Have you ever gone on a hiking trip somewhere and you hike up some, you know, big... Oh, I think you were hiking at Tiger Mountain. Didn't I see that? Ah, I keep track of your hiking. And you get up like a creek and all of a sudden you get to the top of the creek. What do they call that? Where the creek originates, huh? Those are called the headwaters of a particular you know, stream, right? It means it's the source. And that's what Paul was saying. Jesus Christ is the source of the church, right? I mean, I, I'm still thankful for Timberlake and it's amazing coffee, right? And just, and the hospitality and all the things. But, but, but guess what? Jesus Christ is what this church is about. And that's the source of the force that changes our lives. And it's easy to get away from that. It really is. And Paul wanted to make sure, look, if, if you need to understand this, he wanted everybody to know that Jesus, right, he is the center, he's the creator, and he's the source. And in the fourth stanza of this poem, he, he said Jesus is the ultimate authority, okay? So can you see, all he's been doing in this little poem is saying he's the most interesting man in the world. You know, he's just been going over different ways that made sense to these folks that, you know, he is the firstborn. He is the very image of the invisible Christ. He is our picture of God. He holds all things together. He's the head of the church. And now he says he's the ultimate authority. And the way uh, he described it, he said, he is from the beginning. Now, this is where Paul, like, just in case I, I forgot to mention this, even though I said Paul is writing this to a non-Jewish community, which I appreciate because I'm non-Jewish, Paul is hyper-Jewish. I mean, this guy is as Jewish as you could get. I mean, he graduated from, you know, Hasidic University. I mean, he knew everything. And so his Jewishness kind of comes out here in this when he says, look, he is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead. That's very Jewish in its approach because Israel's God was creator God. If you read the Psalms of David, it says, you know, that our God created. And that was, that was the way that they understood God, his creative ability. And here, Pastor Paul is saying, look, the creator is also the redeemer. It's Jesus. And he has ultimate authority. He has been given, the word he used is supremacy. Supremacy. And again, you can imagine that if these folks thought, well, I thought Zeus had supremacy. I mean, I thought Jesus was, you know, he's important, but I mean, he's not, you know. And, you know, Zeus' father is Kronos, which is Father Time. You know, his mother is, you know, Mother Earth. I mean, these are the people that are really out there. And this is what Paul says. He says, Jesus Christ has supremacy. And when he used that word, he meant beyond them. Whatever force in the universe these people would attribute to these different gods, he's saying the force that Jesus Christ exerts is a greater force, and the force is with you. That's too good to be true. Yeah, because guess what? There are a lot of forces in the world, even today. Now, you might say, you know, Rick, 
I really don't have like a, a little temple to Dionysus, the god of wine in my house. You know, I'm not really, you know, Zeusing it up too much. So, you know, this whole thing. But guess what? You and I, we have little icons. We have little things that we, you know. I was talking to somebody the other day, and, uh, you know, I said, if you brought somebody from ancient Greece into our culture, you know, and they would say, wow, I can see what's important to these people. And there's even writers who say that, you know, many of us would say, well, yeah, I don't believe in, you know, I'm not a pantheist. I don't think there's a God in everything. I don't think there's a tree God and a bush God and a sun God. I'm not a pantheist. And they say modern day pantheism is materialism. That's why I said Costco's at the highest point in my town. That's kind of telling. Because we, we do have forces, economic forces. Uh, We have forces that influence our lives. There are forces that sometimes are beyond our own control, the force of addiction that begins to take over somebody's life. The crushing force of disappointment when you have to process the loss of something that you thought was going to be and now it's not. How about the force of betrayal when somebody hurt you and you have to live through that pain That is a powerful force. You and I have exposure to all kinds of forces, all kinds of things that are trying to push and pull us in this life. And what Pastor Paul is saying, unless we understand the supreme force of Jesus Christ and the power of his love, we will not be fully mature. And he uses examples which, again, really connect to me, like living in, you know, a boating community. He said the winds will push us, like we'll be tossed around by every new idea because we don't really understand the force that Jesus Christ offers. Now, there's a really good documentary film out that I recommend. I don't always recommend films because you know how that kind of gets into like, well, that's what you like, but not what I like. But I'm going to go ahead and say you'll like it, okay? And it's because it's, uh, it's all about a friend of mine it's called The Last Man on the Moon. It just came out, kind of Netflix has got it, but there's a few theaters that ran it. It's an independent film, and it's all about Captain Eugene Cernan, Apollo 17, last man on the moon. To this day, he's the la- his footprint is the last footprint, human footprint on the moon. And I've had a chance to meet Gene and, you know, uh, you know have spent some time with him. And uh, I asked him, you know, tell me what, you know, was one of the most, you know, kind of incredible pivotal times in that journey. And many of you understand the whole moon thing, you know, in the Apollo, they would, you know, blast a rocket off with three guys in it. You know, they'd get to the moon, you know, and they'd leave one guy in a lunar orbiter and he'd just kind of be hanging out and they'd send two guys to the moon, to the surface of the moon, in in what they call a lunar lander, right? And it was solid rocket fuel. And this happened in 1972. How many of you weren't alive yet? Go ahead, admit it. Not many, right? 1972. So I'm telling you, when I talked to Gene, he said, let me, let me tell you something. He said, I know things have really developed since 72 in terms of, you know, navigation and, you know, computer uh, uh, abilities. He said, man, we were flying the thing. We had, we had slide rules with us. You know, we were running the numbers on a piece of paper. And he said, they got to the moon. They had to use a little fuel, you know, so they could land it. They spent three days doing all these experiments. When he put his foot up and he saw that last footprint on the moon, got back into that uh, module, they ran the numbers, they ran it again, 
A third time, they wanted to make sure. And what's funny about it, this is a true story. The guy who, who actually invented the, solar or the, uh, the solid rocket fuel that he was on was his college roommate. <laughs> so he was saying to him, you know, Bill, I hope you know what you're doing here. Because he said they needed 14.7 seconds of thrust or they were not going to make it out of the gravitational pull of the moon. The lunar gravitational pull, which is not as strong as the Earth's, but it's there. He said they had to go for all they were worth for 17.7 seconds. And if they had 17.5 and they ran out of juice, they would have drifted back to the surface of the moon. And guess what? You know, they would have landed, but not softly. Because they, they, they were out of fuel. And he said it was the longest 14.7 seconds of his life. So he looked over at his buddy, and he said they just put the pedal to the metal, and they just watched this little digital clock, you know, on the dashboard there, and it was just like 10, 11, and it was like, <laughs> and he was saying, man, we go, baby. And he said it was about 15.4 seconds when it just went, <laughs> and they made it. Well, we know they made it because I had breakfast with the guy, you know, so I mean, that makes it kind of anticlimactic. But, uh, but he said it was, it was incredible. And he said, look, the gravitational pull of that particular satellite, you know, the moon, is strong enough to pull you back in unless you have on board a force that is beyond equivalent to the gravitational pull. He said that solid rocket booster was enough to get us out of there. And I'm here tonight to tell you, to remind you, to inform you that the force that Jesus Christ exerts in our life is beyond equivalent to the forces that we face in our world. That that's what Pastor Paul was trying to tell us. He wasn't trying to minimize the fact that addiction is powerful, disappointment is powerful, betrayal is powerful. He's just saying Jesus Christ has a surpassing power. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit that gives us the thrust in life to break through and to not be trapped and to not crash land. And that is from five little verses in chapter one. That's why most scholars say this little poem is one of the high points in terms of the person, the nature, and the role of Jesus Christ. And when we understand this, we begin to stand firm and stand tall. Like, that's what Paul says. Stand. And when the winds and new ideas come, we are not shaken. Because we understand that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. We understand that he holds all things together by his promise. And that's why I love that song, which is the second time I mentioned it tonight. I think about the force of the force of you know God in our lives that's a greater force than the things we face. And I think that song we sang really sums it up. His love is relentless. I mean, you know, it just, just, God just continues to pour out his love in our lives beyond whatever we face. And so I think um, I think it's I personally think it's uh, beyond informative to understand what Pastor Paul was saying in this first little letter to the Colossian church. But I also think that it's possible that not all of us, but that some of us here tonight, you're caught in some gravitational pull. You've got some forces at play in your life that are directing who you are 
And it's, the result is an immaturity in your behavior. And what a beautiful thing to be able to come to a place and say, Jesus, you're the head of this church. And I want you to fill my life with a power that is surpassing and beyond equivalent to the forces that I face. And we get to do that when we pray together. So would you bow your head with me?